Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. And I want to read from verses 1 through verse 10. Or Hebrews uh, verse 11. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Amen. Well, it is Father's Day, as you well know. And um, fathers love to give advice, don't they? Amongst other things. I love to give advice as a father to five kids of our own. Well, here's some fatherly advice by famous fathers over the centuries. Here's Christopher Columbus's father. I don't care what you've discovered, Christopher. You could have written to us anyhow. <laughs> Here's Michelangelo's father. Mike, can't you paint on walls like other children? Do you have any idea how hard it is to get that stuff off the ceiling? Here's Goldilocks's father. I've got a bill here for a broken chair from the Bear family. Do you know anything about this, Goldie? Albert Einstein's dead. But Albert, it's your senior picture. Can't you do something about your hair? <laughs> Styling gel, mousse, anything. Thomas Edison's dead. Of course I'm proud that you invented the electric light bulb, Thomas. Now turn off that light and get to bed for crying out loud. Finally, Humpty Dumpty's dead. Humpty, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times not to sit on that wall. But would you listen to me? No. Come on, some of those were funny, right? <laughs> Fathers love to give advice, especially on Father's Day. We remember that. And brethren, while I realize that it's not particularly popular today to preach a message of Father's Day because it brings to light the reality and the distinction of femininity and masculinity in our culture and that distinction that the world hates so much it seems. Even though it's not popular to make distinctions between femininity and 
masculinity, we do so without apology because it's in God's Word. Amen? Amen. That's why we want to focus our attention today on this issue of fatherhood. In many segments of our society, as you know, if we even begin to talk about maleness or masculinity, you're a bigot. You're a narrow-minded person. Or you're not progressive enough if you want to talk about this. But this godless mindset shouldn't deter us. It should actually do the opposite, especially on days like Mother's Day or Father's Day. It should do the opposite. We should be all the more, on days like this, reminded of God's beautiful design of femininity and masculinity. And at the core of what it means to be masculine, according to God's Word, as you know, is that of the role of fatherhood. Is that of the role of being a father who is faithful to shepherding your family if you are a man this morning? Whether present or future fathers, we need to be reminded of our roles. Now I realize that Father's Day, similar to Mother's Day, for some people can be a time when we experience a lot of conflicting emotions. I'm well aware of that. Depending on your particular life journey or the baggage that you carry as you've walked life, Perhaps this morning you're well aware of the sobering responsibility that comes with being a father. Like me, maybe you're also well aware of how much you fall short of God's standard. You're well aware of that. This is true no matter where you fall in the spectrum. Some of us uh, wish to one day be fathers. If you're a young man sitting in here this morning or a young boy sitting this morning, one day you're going to be a father. Some of us are just starting out as fathers. Maybe your wife is pregnant or you have little ones running around all over the place, right? Some of us are in the heat of fathering. We have kids under our roof. Some of us are now looking back on our rearview mirror. But now you are a grandparent. And now you're wanting to make sure that your married kids are faithful to raising up their own kids. You thought you were done, but you were reminded, right, brutally that you are not done ever, right? Now that you are a, parent, a grandparent. Coupled with this, we've all had dist- distinct backgrounds. Some of us no longer have our fathers with us. And we recognize that today. Some of us had very good fathers. You had a very good role model, or maybe you still do have a very good role model of a father. Others of us had bad fathers. Absentee fathers who abandoned us. Or who we met, perhaps we never even met our own biological father. No matter where you fall, it's comforting to know this morning that God grants grace in every circumstance. Amen, brethren? In every circumstance. He has in my life. And the point is, we've all had our own experiences, backgrounds, baggage, some pleasant, some painful. But even so, I, wanna, I want us to be reminded this morning that regardless of your experience, this morning's message is applicable to each and every one of us, brethren. Each and every one of us, even those of you who are now past fatherhood in the sense that your, your kids are out of the home, listen, if fatherhood is important to God, then it should be important to each of us, especially in the light of the current opposition in our culture on the distinctive role of fathers and mothers in our society, right? And what comprises a father and a mother in our society, The fact is that each of us have a role in the church to play in men fleshing out their role as Christ-like fathers. And we want to be reminded of that this morning. 
Each of us as a church, including all you ladies, should value and care that God's design for fatherhood be fleshed out in our church by the men in our church, both in the present and in the future. And I hope that that's your heart, ladies, so that you don't tune me out in this message or tune out the Word of God, but you recognize that we're all in this together as part of God's kingdom. Now, my approach is a bit different this morning. I want us to, today to look at the ultimate father, to glean from our heavenly father. Because no matter what your background is, we can all learn something from the ultimate father of all, who is our great God. Amen? This is not going to be so much of a technical exposition as much as it is a, a drawing out of some key observations, especially from verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews 12, and then some implications and application from this beautiful text. And what you need to remember as we lead into our text here, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, is that the writer of Hebrews has been hammering into his readers the supremacy of Christ. Here's his central message. If you were to boil down the book of Hebrews, his central message is this. Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the old covenant. He is a better high priest in that his ministry is all-sufficient and that he is an eternal high priest and that his eternal priesthood is final and definitive. He is better. Finally, Christ is better in that He's inaugurated a greater ministry, that of the new covenant ministry. Christ is better. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, don't go back to Judaism. Or don't go back to any debt system of works-based religion. And that would put every other religion or philosophical system in our world, by the way, in that category. Every other religion or philosophical system in our world, brethren, is a works-based system of religion to some extent or another when you slice and dice it. Except biblical Christianity, which says it's all about Jesus outside of me and what He's accomplished. The writer of Hebrews says, don't trust in any other worldview or ideology. Christ is better. He is sufficient. Cling to the faithful one. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And then, by the time he gets to Hebrews 12, he's talking to them of how to be people of faith in the midst of suffering. That's why he looks at, in Hebrews 11, at that great hall of faith. He's saying, if you're going to endure, you need to follow the example of all those who've come before you. You are not alone, believer. If you're going to persevere, look at all of those who were sinners just like you, but they made it to the end by the grace of God. The hall of faith. But then, if you're going to be a person of faith also, not only look back, Hebrews 11, at the hall of faith, the heroes of the faith, but look to the supreme example of, of Christ as you run the race. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, of our faith. So be encouraged, right? By the past examples of, a, of the heroes of the faith, he says to them. And then fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, but then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, he instructs them to persevere and to endure. And the only way they will do this is by entrusting themselves to their heavenly Father. I want you to notice this. Amidst their running of the Christian race, the focus becomes their relationship to their heavenly Father and God's relationship to them. And so it's here in verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews 12 where I want us to camp out today for a few minutes. On a day when we honor and celebrate fathers. 
We need to look to and emulate the supreme model of fatherhood men. And it's our God, our ultimate heavenly Father. What kind of father is He for our comfort and our encouragement today? And dads, fathers, what can we learn from the ultimate Father that we may look to emulate Him by His grace and in the power of the Spirit today? I want you to notice first that He's an engaged Father. He is an engaged Father. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that God is not like so many earthly dads. Distant, indifferent, disengaged. Instead, He's active. He's involved. He's tuned into the life of His children in a very intimate way. That He's an engaged Father is underscored, if you will notice, by the repeated use of this word, discipline. Discipline. Nine times in these verses that word discipline appears in one form or another. It's the word paideia in the Greek. And it refers in this context to God's proactive, comprehensive training of His children. He is an engaged Father. He is always instructing us. He is guiding us. He is correcting us. He is reproving us when we need it. Even disciplining us and rendering consequences upon us in terms of spiritual spankings when we disobey Him. He's an engaged Father. He nurtures us and brings us up and brings correction when necessary. How comforting it is that as Christians, we are children of a Father, brethren, who who is not aloof, who is not passive, who is not indifferent to us, but quite tuned in to our life. Even in the most difficult moments of life, Your heavenly Father, Christian, is there. He cares. Amen? Even in the midst of our greatest anxieties. That's why 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 even instructs us to, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He's an engaged Father. Even in the toughest moments of life, when there's great pain and anxiety, He's there for you, believer. Now men, as you think about that and as we glean this from our Heavenly Father, it's this active engagement by God, our ultimate Father, that becomes the example for you and I as fathers to to emulate, to follow, yes, albeit imperfectly because we are sinners saved by grace. Our culture might say that fatherly parental involvement, as you know, is, is overbearing, condescending, oppressive. These are some of the terms being used these days for fathers who are in the lives of their kids in the right kind of manner. You're being overbearing, condescending, oppressive, abusive even, because it robs children of their autonomy and their individuality and their dignity if you are involved in their life, even within godly parameters. You're being oppressive and even abusive. Have you heard of those kinds of things in our culture? All over the place. If you have not, you need to get on the internet and you need to become educated brother and sister. This is our culture this day and age. This is the kind of hostility and opposition that we are experiencing. And to be sure, to be sure, listen to me, if done sinfully, it certainly can be abusive. If done sinfully. I've known... And I have counseled many, many 
who have to some extent or another been past recipients or present recipients of abusive fathers. In fact, I was one of those as a young child in Mexico. So I can attest to this by experience. I get it. There are and there have been many abusive fathers. But this is the polar opposite. This type of engagement here and discipline and and instruction and correction is the polar opposite of God's loving fatherly discipline, right? Worldly abuse is different than loving, spiritual, uh, uh, Christ-like discipline within the, the context of a godly home. Very, very different. That's not what we are talking about. Harmful abuse. And Satan loves to lump these two things together, by the way, so that we do away with the biblical instructions of God's Word. So that we say, well, it's all here lumped in together because I experienced this particular perversion of so-called discipline, then therefore I don't need to follow the Word of God. God doesn't give us an out for that, brethren. In fact, we learn from those experiences and we go to the Word of God to get clarity on what is Christ-like discipline. Amen? So we need to be engaged fathers in training our children. And if we do it God's way in love, this type of gospel-shaped discipline brings glory to God and becomes a blessing to our children. I've seen it many, many times. For all the distortions and all the, 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 the painful counseling of those cases that I just described, I've seen the opposite. I've seen people who have sought to be faithful, not perfect, but God has honored that particular endeavor. And he's brought about blessing to their children. May I also add, dads, Scripture speaks about the necessity of fatherly involvement and engagement. Listen to me. Your active engagement, like your heavenly father, emulating his pattern and character is not optional. It's not take it or leave it. Contrary to what our culture is moving toward, that parents should have no real say in the lives of their children, Scripture thunderously and definitively speaks about parents, especially you fathers, me included, being those who are the primary trainers of our children. We take the lead, men. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 is explicit about this. There's no way that we can weasel ourselves out of this particular text. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline that is training and admonition of the Lord. And in Colossians, fathers are warned how not to train their children. Colossians 3.21, fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. In both of those passages, fathers are primarily, though not exclusively, primarily responsible for engaging and training our children. This is true. Dads, you are a point in shepherding your your family spiritually. The buck stops with, with you. You will be accountable to God someday for how you shepherded your family, beginning with your wife and then your kids, young and older. You will be responsible. In a salvific kind of way, no. Our salvation is based upon the finished work of the person and the work of Jesus, right? But we are called to respond to that wonderful salvation by living out fruitfully and faithfully beginning with how we shepherd our families in the context of the home, our marriages, and in our fathering. There are scriptures which speak of the danger of not engaging and training our children. Listen to Proverbs 29 and verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, 
but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. That's a verse right there speaking not only of positive instruction on the one hand, but also of loving and measured physical consequences for disobedience. We used to call them growing up with our kiddos, you're going to get a boom boom right now. Right? Or spankings. No, I don't want a boom boom. They knew. They knew. But note what I said. Loving and measured, I would add spirit-controlled discipline. Not sinful, destructive, out of control, punitive, and vindictive physical abuse done in sinful anger. That's a distortion of the biblical pattern and instruction and commands. And if that in any way, shape, or form is you, Dad, this morning, you need to repent of that. You need to confess that to God and come clean before the Lord. And you need to confess that to one or two other people who love you and who want to help you, can help you in that area and hold you accountable. It's not just a me and God thing. Well, I told God about it and then you continue to do it. No, you confess it to God in a genuine sense of heartfelt repentance and then you confess it to somebody else who can help you within the community of the body of Christ. It's both, not just me and God. It's me, God, and the community of brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a church family, amen? We have not been called in salvation into isolation, into a monastery type of a lifestyle. No, we've been called into a community where God is at the top of this triangle. You are on one side and the rest of your church family is on the other. So you need to confess that not only to God, but to others who can help you. You need accountability in that area. Similarly, Proverbs 22 and verse 6 speaks of our engagement as fathers. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That verse assumes that the heart of a child from the womb is inherently sinful and has a propensity toward evil already. And so the loving father understands this human depravity from the time that a child is is conceived. And so we don't just leave our children alone, uh, what the world tells us. Just leave them alone and they're going to be fine. Find themselves in their own identity. Eh, Wrong. Because we are all humanly depraved. We need to be pointed in the right direction. We need to have the Word of God opened and be trained and instructed in the things of the Lord. Because we have a natural propensity towards evil. And so, fathers, God requires us to help our kids by engaging them. And as we do so, we become an essential restraining grace in the lives of our children. How? Through loving instruction and discipline. Through active engagement. Think about that this morning. Are you engaged in that area of instructing your son or daughter by God's grace, albeit imperfectly, as I can identify with you? Fellow dads, as hard as it is and as unpopular as it may be in our culture, are you tuned in to the lives of your children? You know, oftentimes this is not going to be easy, is it? Actually, it's never easy. We're going to stand in the gap of our children, young or older, wanting to go in a particular sinful direction. But in those moments, we need to engage them with courage, fearing God, not our kids or the world system around us. We need to fear God. To be sure, this takes a certain tenacity, doesn't it? Courage, boldness, men, that only God can give us. Memorize and meditate on 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 
What a verse. The idea there of strong is to be, to be a, a courageous. Courageous as men. How much more do we need courage than in our marriages and in our fathering brothers? To be a disengaged father is to be a coward. To be a disengaged father is anti-manly. To be aloof or indifferent to your wife and kids. There's nothing masculine about the typical portrayal of so-called aloof fathers in our society. Men who are passive, men who are wimpy, men who are cowardly, men who are weak. Nothing manly about that. Nothing masculine about that. About disengaged fathers. No. By God's grace, let us learn from the ultimate father who is an actively engaged father. Well, what else can we glean from the ultimate father? Not only is he an engaged father, but write this down. He's also a relational father. He's also a relational father. Notice the relational language throughout this passage in the context of God's disciplining of us as his children. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Drop down to verse 8. He says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you notice the, the family language there? It's familial language. In other words, God engages you, believer, Christian, precisely because you are his family. You are his child. He is your dad. That parent-child beautiful relationship shapes and informs and, and frames his approach and his dealings with you if you are a believer this morning. The beautiful reality. Now we know this. This relationship didn't always exist. The Bible says that at one time, prior to Christ, we were enemies of God, not children. We were rebels who had committed, committed mutiny against Him. We were without hope and without God in the world. Our sin alienated us prior to Christ. And the last thing that we wanted was a relationship with God. We were running the opposite direction. Enemies of God, not children of God. But God. But God. Amen? Out of His sheer grace, mercy, kindness, send His Son Jesus into the world to die and pay for our sins. God in Christ, brethren, performed a, a magnificent, marvelous rescue operation. And you are, He saved you. He saved me. And it was in Christ that this relationship was made possible. We were reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. And now we are His children. There's this father-child relationship. By the way, this is true for any one of you this morning who repents of your sins, who turns from your sins and puts your trust in the Lord Jesus. You can be reconciled. You can be forgiven. You can go from enemy of God to child of God. Turn from your sins. Trust Jesus that you might enter into this beautiful, restored relationship with your Creator and He would be your Father. You would enter into this vital relationship with Him. And so in Christ, He is now, as believers, our Father. We are His, his children. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. We read these beautiful words. For you, Christian have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of, of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You hear that? As a believer, your identity first and foremost is in the fact that you are in Christ. That's your first and foremost identity. Everything else flows from that. Your first and foremost identity, brother, sister, is not in the fact that you are single. It's not on the fact that you are married. It's not on the fact that you are a parent or a child. If you are a believer, your identity is on the fact that you are a child of God and you are in Christ. It's a wonderful, glorious reality. You're in relationship with with God through faith in Jesus. And listen, no matter what you do or have done, if you are genuinely a child of God, regardless of your past or present failures, what baggage or history you carry, even to this, this, this morning and this day when oftentimes many men feel just so deflated because you look back at all the weaknesses and, and things that you've done wrong. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, nothing will ever change that. Nothing. There's great security in that. Amen? And great assurance in that. God is your Father in Christ. Excuse me, in Christ, you are his child. Now, why is this also important, apart from the wonder of it all, that you are in Christ? It's because the more that we live in the light of our adoption as sons and daughters, brethren, this will carry out into our relationship with our own children and the way that we relate to, to them. The more that you understand that you are God's child in Jesus, the more that will, fl- that will uh, impact and have a massive impact into the way that you relate to your own children, especially for us as fathers. God's relationship with us should lead us to cultivating a relationship with our own children. We too must strive to be personable, relational fathers. We must not resort, as most of us tend to do, to simply being distant authority figures in our kids' lives. Someone who just shoots out orders, who our children don't know personally, and we can all struggle with this to some extent or another. You can identify with this as you look back at your own journey fathering your own kids. That's our kids, young or older, need a relationship with their dad. They need a relationship with their father. And oftentimes we resort to just being corrective figures in the lives of our kids. To be sure, we just said that correction is a big part of it, isn't it? Positive instruction, negative correction, including consequences, that's certainly part and parcel of what it means to be a father, yes. But oftentimes, all we become is correctional figures in the lives of our kids, and there's no relationship, no personableness. And so we need to be relational dads. This requires sacrifice from us, saying no to certain things so that we could say yes to our families. It requires a reordering of our, of our priorities. You know, there have been many times when I've had to say no to people in the church. I, love, I wish I could reproduce myself and make two campuses. I haven't figured out how to do that. Have you guys figured out how to do that? can be in two places at the same time, but there have been many times when I've had to say no to people or things so that I could say yes to my wife and to my kids. When I have been needed by my wife and my kids, we need to do the same thing to be available and accessible to them. This requires well-defined priorities. What are those? Remember that you are a child of God first. 
Men, abide in Christ. Everything flows from that. You are a child of God first. Then you are a churchman. You've been called to be a part of the church, of the community of brethren. Then you are a husband before you are a father, men, if you're married. You're a husband before you are a father. We'll talk about this later and the importance of this. Then you are a father. Then you are an employee. Then you are a friend. Then after all of that, men, listen to me, come your hobbies, your entertainment, the games on television, golf, whatever else. Everything else comes after that. If you could do it with those people, that's even better, right? Best of both worlds. But oftentimes we turn those priorities on their head. First for men, it becomes about our our comforts and making money, not just so that we could provide for our families faithfully per the Word of God, but so that we could provide all the material possessions that we want to provide for ourselves. Hobbies, entertainment, then devotion to Christ and to family and to the church. That should not be the case. We need to have right priorities. This also requires time if we're going to be relational, right? Time invested. Ephesians 5.16 Make the most of your time because the days are evil, he says. Dads, these are evil days. These are evil days and God wants us to purposefully set aside time to invest into our kids. They will not always remain, especially if they're still in your home. Things will not remain as they are. One day soon coming before you blink, they're out of the under your roof. This is the time. We won't be able to buy the time back. This is a time to invest now into our children. So plan time with family. Set aside time for dad-son or, or, or dad-daughter dates when they're little or when they're older. Obviously, things change with the seasons of life. Things look different, right? Things even become more informal and ongoing conversations as our kids get older. Set aside time for this, for conversations, purposeful questions that you've set aside that you've thought about ahead, dads, so that when you come to in the presence of your kids that you're able to ask them pinpointed questions that show that you care and that you love, that you want to draw out the well of their hearts and really understand how they're wired. Questions are key, aren't they? Say, Pastor Campus, where's the chapter and verse that talks about being relational or personal? Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. We get snapshots of Jesus' teaching and his miracles in the Gospels, right? Just snapshots. But Jesus also spent time with his disciples, always with them, doing stuff with them, eating with them, attending weddings, doing retreats with them. For rest and relaxation and conversation and focused, pinpointed time to invest into his disciples. There was a relationship of trust and obedience between Jesus and his disciples. We need to learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so it is Christ like to be relational, it is Christ like to be personable and approachable. So, brothers, quit making excuses, some of you. Well, you know, I'm just not expressive enough. That has nothing to do with it. You know, I'm just not, I'm just not, I'm just an introvert. My personality doesn't lend itself to that. Stop making excuses. I'm an introvert by definition. What in the world am I doing here right now? Up front, in front of you guys. The grace of God is more powerful than anything regarding our personality traits. Amen? Don't ever excuse being not approachable to your kids or to your family or to people in the church because, well, that's not my personality. I'm an introvert. Stop making excuses. 
God's grace is sufficient, brother or sister. His grace is enough. Be Christ-like. Be a relational father, churchman, church lady. What else can we learn from the ultimate father, from the perfect father? Not only is he an engaged father, a relational father, but thirdly, he's a loving father. Write that down. He's a loving father. He's engaged with us and cultivates a relationship with us, listen to me, out of a heart of sincere, genuine, unhypocritical love for us. Amen? What a privilege. What a blessing because we don't deserve that. We are not lovable, attractive people in and of ourselves. So he loves us genuinely. It's not just him going through the motions or being duty-driven as our father, and therefore he does nice things for us. No, he genuinely cares about us and loves us. This is so different than the world, isn't it? So different. This unhypocritical, sincere kind of love from our father. The world tends to herald fathers who are, who are physically attractive dads. Cool and hip, good-looking, physically strong and in shape, all the while aloof to their own spiritual condition and the spiritual condition of their kids. But it's cool that they have a six-pack, right? The world heralds success, successful dads who work to provide not only in accordance with the Word of God faithfully providing for their families, but who go beyond that, who are the super successful businessmen who are never with their families, never make time for their families, but they have all the houses, all the cars, all the dogs, all the cats and mice in the world, right? You know what I'm saying? The world heralds stoic fathers are championed. That's who show no emotion, who never display affection, who never even give a hug to their own kids. The world heralds the tough guy, the tough guy type of personality, right? Who never, ever, ever told his son or daughter, I love you. I love you. The world heralds men like that. Some herald authoritarian type of fathers who lorded over their kids. Some grew up with fathers who were simply authority figures and fathers who even abused that authority, leaving you and I to wonder if they ever even loved you, right? Some of us can identify with that. Authoritarianism is sinful. It's a distortion of God-given biblical authority for us to, to flesh out our shepherding responsibilities as fathers. Authority, brethren, and submission are a God thing, biblically given. But we can distort those and pervert those, right? That's what we're seeing all over our society. Authority and submission being perverted and twisted into being something that it isn't. And people exploiting one another and exploiting the weak. We're seeing that. That's not God-given authority or God-given submission as defined by the Word of God. That's a distortion. That's a perversion of those wonderful realities that bring order to society and order to a home and order in the church when used rightly, when done in a Christ-like fashion. So this is the world's take on the model father, right? But God's Word tells us how the true ultimate father operates and what he's characterized by. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers, physical fathers, to discipline us, and we respected them, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, isn't God, your Father, so much more trustworthy, right? His authority, the authority of your Heavenly Father is inviting and, and pleasant. Why? Because He loves us. Look at verse 10. 
For they, human fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Even the most faithful human fathers did their best, right? But they were imperfect, even the best of them. But He, God our Father, disciplines us for our good. Underline that word, for our good, so that we may share His holiness. Why does God engage you? Why does God relate to you? Why does God discipline you for your good as His child? Because He loves you. He wants you to become holy like like Jesus. Because He wants what is best for you. Because He cares about you, believer, child of God. It's like what someone has said. True love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. True love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. In other words, if you really love someone, you're going to want them to be pure. You're going to want them to be holy. You're going to want them to be like Christ. How much more our Heavenly Father, brethren? This is Him. He loves us. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, your Father... His loving discipline is often painful, even difficult for us to experience. But we can rest assured that all of His dealings are ultimately to bear forth fruit in our lives, to cause us to grow in righteousness, brethren, in that behavior that pleases Him. So He means our good. He wants us. He loves us. Therefore, He will only do what is good for us. Write these passages down, James 1.16. James 1.16 reminds us of this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's good. He only does you good as a believer, right? Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask Him. And don't we love Romans 8.28, brethren? You know it by memory, I'm sure. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Listen, if, if God is your Father and you are His child, no matter how grim things may look sometimes, you can rest assured everything He is doing in your life, even if you don't understand it, fully and be able to slice and dice it precisely and accurately is because your Father loves you. Amen? And so dads, fathers, if love is the great motive, manner, and method of our Heavenly Father, then we must follow His lead as well, right? It must never be that we use our authority, our God-given authority, our male headship in the home, which is biblical, to harm or to hurt, but to heal and to do good. We must never use God's authority given to us to shepherd our families, to, to destroy and damage, but to strengthen and to build up, to do what is helpful for our families rather than what is hurtful and destructive. We must remember as fathers three things. Ready? Parental or fatherly authority is God-given. It's God-given. It's, it's delegated to you. It doesn't belong to you. It's not inherent in you. It's God-given. Secondly, your God-given authority is for a specific time so that you would carry out your stewardship on this earth. Your children are on loan. They don't belong to you. They don't belong to me. 
And third, your authority is for a specific purpose. It's delegated. It's for a specific time. It's for a specific purpose. And that purpose is the benefit and good of your family. It is not to be used for the purpose of exploiting your family, of hurting your family, of doing anything that would be considered abusive to your family. It's for the purpose of loving and shepherding them as God would have you shepherd them in accordance with God's Word. Any perversion of this, type, of this authority, God-given authority, is sinful. And you're going to be held accountable for the way that you flesh out that authority, brother. What are some additional ways that we can love our children as fathers? You need to love the Lord first. Amen? Brothers, if we are not loving Christ... John 15, verses 4-5 through say, Abide in me. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. Ultimately, He says, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't that so true for us as fathers? You want to love your family? Love the Lord first. Cultivate your relationship with Jesus first. Be devoted to Christ first. Everything flows from that. Secondly, love their mom. Love their mom before the kiddos. Your kids are not your priority, men. Moms, your kids are not your priority, as cutesy as they might be, okay? Your husband's your priority after the Lord Jesus. Men, your wife is your priority. Show them a visible example of what it means to love, cherish, value, and serve the most important lady in their life and in your life. Show them that. Model that. One mentor once said to me, Kempis, when your kids leave the home, There are two things that you want them to say above anything else. Yes, my father had his weaknesses. Yes, my dad had his his sins. But two things I remember. One, that he was passionately in love with Jesus and that he was passionately in love with our mom. That's good stuff, isn't it? Passionately in love with Jesus. Passionately in love with their mom. Love their mom. Third, be devoted to the family. Don't do family-olatry, right? Worship your family. That's sinful. And there's a distortion of that. But love your family. Be devoted to your family. Prioritize family, not in an idolatrous way, but in a God-honoring way where you're available for them, cherishing them, caring for them, serving them, providing for them. Where they know that dad will drop anything for them. Do they know that? That you'll drop anything for them, dads. Fourth, be devoted to the church. You want to love your kids? Men, be devoted to the church. Show, that the, show them that the kingdom of Christ is greater than anything. Show them what it means to center life, including your family life, in and around the church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not what? Overpower it. It's the one entity, His church, that will not be overpowered. He promised that. Doesn't it follow then, men, that we should be centering our our personal lives and family life around the church? Really, men. Not sports, not any other thing. I'm not saying that those things are sinful. We don't want to go beyond what stands written. But so many men think that being a faithful dad is giving their kids all the dreams, all the experiences, all of that, and the church is all the while on the back burner in the back seat. Later on, your children will begin to articulate in the way that they speak and in their life how the church plays no part in their life. We need to look in the mirror first and foremost for why that is. Think about that. Be devoted to the church. Be devoted to the church with your family. 
Another way to love your family is to protect them. Protect them. What do they watch? What do they listen to? What do they expose themselves to? You can't be a helicopter dad, a control freak kind of dad, a micromanager, a legalistic kind of dad. But we are watchmen, aren't we? We are those who seek to protect our families. There's a spiritual warfare out there, brothers. Read Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. There's spiritual war out there. We need to be watchmen with regards to our families. And the battle is being won or lost on the level of the ground level of ideologies that are communicated through entertainment and culture and music and all of that. Are you tuned into that? To what your kids are listening to? To what your kids are watching? And when you engage it, is it done with the truth in mind, but in love, in gentleness, so that you don't, they don't run the opposite direction when you engage them? Do it in love, but engage with the truth. Engage. Those are some additional ways we can love our families as fathers. Man, this is a hostile culture we're living in. We're living in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, so we must look to and emulate the ultimate Father. Amen? By God's grace, strive to be like our Heavenly Father. Be an engaged Father. Be a relational, personable Father. Be a loving Father. Boy, as I was thinking about these, i got to tell you, two primary emotions. One, I just kept thinking about the excitement, the exhilaration of being a dad over the years. It's exciting. It's joyful. But secondly, how sobering it is, isn't it? How sobering. It's exciting and sobering. And man, I kept thinking about the fact that I need grace. I need grace. And God promises to give it to us. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Maybe you're there, brother, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May I also add, in addition to dependence on the Lord, that we need one another as men. We need one another, brothers. So, if you need help in this area, Pastor Kempis, I want to be this kind of, of dad. I want to be this kind of father. I need, I need help. Obviously, the Lord first, but then commit this week to reaching out to someone for help. How about beginning with your shepherd elders, your pastors, and letting us know that you need help in this area? We all need it, brothers. We all need it. Seek help or, or maybe prayerfully consider identifying a godly man in this church whom you can reach out to and who can begin to meet with you one-on-one -on -one to work through some content. And we can help you with that as pastors so that you could grow as a, as a father in the church. Learn from someone who has made their own share of mistakes but has shown maturity in that area and who is further along than you are in. Seek help. Someone to meet with you and speak into your life. Seek discipleship, in other words. Thirdly, may I encourage you, connect to a small group. Connect to a small group, home group, men's group, ladies, again, women's group, as, as far as even being a mother, getting around other mothers. Those small groups are shepherding and accountability hubs where there are others in the same battle that you are in, right? They're in the same battle that you are in. We're not going to be everything that God has called us to be if we do it in isolation. You understand? We need to be operating in the context of community within the, those wonderful shepherding groups. Be a highly committed participant rather than a passive spectator as a child of God. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the great example that you have set for us. We pray that you would grant us the grace, especially us men, to be masculine men. 
And that that masculinity might flesh itself out in being lovers of you and lovers of our families in tenderness and in the truth we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.